Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Doors of Perception, Dignaga on Consciousness. Let's get back to Mick Jagger, who is still where we left him, seeing a red door. It's still not painted black as he wanted, but that should be no surprise to Mick, since he has told us himself that you can't always get what you want. Now, here's a question about the experience he is having. In addition to seeing the red door, is Mick Jagger aware that he is seeing a red door? You might think that we can't tell for sure. Obviously, we are sometimes aware that we are having a given experience, as when reflecting on how much we are enjoying a piece of music. It may seem, though, that some experiences come without self-awareness of that kind. Indeed, it may even seem that if you enjoy a piece of music enough, you may become so immersed in it that you are no longer aware of yourself listening to it. Or, at the other end of the spectrum, you may be hearing music playing in the background, as at a loud coffee shop, without being aware of hearing it. Someone might need to bring it to your attention, at which point you may realize in retrospect that a Rolling Stones song has been playing since you sat down. Plausible though these examples may seem, Dignaga would reject the lesson we just drew from them. For him, there is no perception without self-awareness. And when he speaks of self-awareness, he has in mind an awareness that is built into the very perception itself. It is just part of seeing a red door to be aware of seeing a red door, and under no circumstances can you be oblivious of seeing it while seeing it. These were controversial claims. Dignaga was not the first Indian thinker to take an interest in the phenomenon of self-awareness. To the contrary, he was rejecting a leading theory of how self-awareness works, which we find in the Nyaya school. For Nyaya, one reason to postulate a faculty of mind, or manas, in the first place is to explain the phenomenon of self-awareness. Mick Jagger's vision would just perceive the red door, and his mind would need to get involved in order to give him awareness of this perception. This is an example of what we might call a reflective theory of self-awareness, because according to Nyaya, the perceiver has to reflect mentally on their perception to become aware of it. The mind is thereby performing a specific function called inner apperception. It is up to Mick Jagger's mind to perceive that he is seeing, much as his seeing perceives the door. On this view, awareness is what philosophers call a second-order phenomenon, like a belief about a belief, as when I believe that Mick's belief that the door is red is a correct judgment on his part, or a desire about a desire, as when Mick wishes he could stop wanting everything to be painted black. Dignaga does not think that awareness is like that. As we'll see shortly, he certainly thinks that we can engage in second-order reflection on our perceptions, but this is not what awareness is for him. He instead adopts what we might call a reflexive view, according to which awareness of perceiving is built into the perception itself, already at the first-order level. Whether you think that awareness is reflective or reflexive, or as the Indian philosophers put it, a case of other illumination or self-illumination, you can still think that some perceptions occur without awareness. This seems especially likely on the reflective view. If I need to engage in second-order reflection on my perceptions to be aware of them, then it stands to reason that I only do that some of the time. The Nyaya could say that the person in the coffee shop is prompted to such an act of reflection when they are made aware that they have already been hearing the Rolling Stones without noticing it. Even on the reflexive view, though, 
One could imagine that we sometimes have perceptions with built-in awareness and sometimes have perceptions that lack awareness. Thus, the person in the coffee shop might first have perception of music without awareness, then an aware perception once it is called to their attention. Dignaga, however, insists that awareness is reflexive and that it is always present. Why? It has something to do with his theory of perception, which we looked at in a previous episode. As we saw then, Dignaga is a phenomenalist. He does not think that we immediately perceive external objects in the world around us, but at best grasp them indirectly by means of what he calls knowable interior forms, representations that are internal to the perceiver. His idea, then, is that awareness of such a representation is part of what it is to perceive. As he states in his collected verses on the means of knowing, every thought or experience has two aspects, objective and subjective. It's easy to understand why cognition needs an objective aspect, it is just in the nature of thought that it is directed towards some object or other. Even dreams and imaginings have some object or content, as a dream of a red door is of the door, and not anything else. We should remember, though, that for Dignaga, this content is not going to be an external object like a real red door. A thought or perception is directed to an internal representation, and he seems to leave it open, whether there is something outside in the world to which that representation corresponds. It's not so easy to say what the subjective aspect of cognition might be. It may be helpful to think about it as the way that the content, like the red door, presents itself to us. A useful analogy here could be photographs or paintings. A photograph of a face has the face as its object, but it also has its own qualities like brightness, sharpness, and contrast, factors that depend on the way the photograph was taken. When you look at a photograph and say that it is overexposed or underdeveloped, you're paying attention to features of the photograph itself, and maybe ignoring what the photograph shows. The same is true of paintings. There are many different frescoes all of the Buddha, but what makes one serene, another typically Burmese, and so on, are the subjective qualities of the individual paintings. To prove that perception does have such a built-in subjective aspect, Dignaga points to the very phenomenon that Nyaya made responsible for awareness, second-order reflection. When I think that I am enjoying a piece of music, or, for that matter, tell myself in a dream that I am only dreaming, I am attending to an experience of which I must already have been aware. If the first-order perception had only its objective content, this would be impossible. Consider again Mick Jagger seeing the red door. If this perception contains nothing but its object, namely the door, then when Mick reflected on it, he could only be reflecting on the door. But in fact, Mick can reflect on the fact that he is seeing the door, attending to his own subjective role in the perception. This could include reflection on the way that the door looks to him. If he's in London and it's foggy, he might think to himself that he's seeing the door but only through a haze, or that in such poor lighting conditions, the door almost looks orange. The analogy to paintings and photographs is again helpful here. A painting of a painting is not the same as a duplicate of the original, and taking a photograph of a photograph is not the same as ordering a second set of prints. And, the second-order images record the way the first images represented their objects. If the first photo was an overexposed image of a face, then the object of the second photo is an overexposed photograph, and not just the face. You might think that someone who believes that all cognition has built-in awareness could simply invite his readers to introspect and see that he's right. After all, if you are always aware of having perceptions when you have them, then you ought to know about it. 
Dignaga does not, however, rest his case on our everyday experience, perhaps because the awareness he is speaking of may often be tacit, in the sense that it rarely comes to our active attention. Consider that you spend your waking day being conscious without explicitly thinking about the fact that you are conscious. Perhaps Dignaga's self-awareness is like that. So, to make his case, Dignaga offers a complex argument which, like other aspects of his work, would be taken up and further developed by later Buddhists from Dhammakirti onwards. He points to the phenomenon of memory. Suppose Mick Jagger goes home and cheers up, now thinking that the door's red shade was actually quite lovely. When he looks back on his earlier experience, he does not, Dignaga suggests, simply remember a red door. He remembers perceiving the red door while standing in front of it. Again, this is very plausible. You will remember that the Buddhist king Ashoka erected inscriptions around his empire with ethical teachings on them, but unless you are remarkably old, you won't remember actually seeing the inscriptions erected. Dignaga's double aspect theory of cognition explains this. When you remember an event you did not experience yourself, you are recalling only objective content. You have a belief that the event did occur. When you remember experiencing an event, you are recalling the subjective awareness you had of that event. Compelling though this is, it may seem to cut no ice against Dignaga's opponent, who thinks that awareness arises through a second-order reflection on cognition. This opponent might simply say that when we remember an event, we are remembering two things, the content of an original experience alongside a second-order reflection directed towards that experience. Thus, McJagger would remember the red door, and furthermore, remember reflecting on the fact that he was seeing a red door. Against this, Dignaga offers a regress argument. How will McJagger remember reflecting on the experience he was having? He will need to have been aware of this very reflective act too, if he is to remember it. But Dignaga's opponent doesn't think that cognitions have built-in awareness. So, when Mick thought to himself, ah, here I am seeing a door, this second-order thought will need a further third-order thought if it is to come to his attention, along the lines of, ah, here I am noticing that I am seeing a door. Obviously, the same argument can be applied at this stage and then again indefinitely. Since, according to the opponent, a cognition is determined entirely by its objective content and not by a subjective awareness, the higher-order thoughts will never get awareness into the picture. We might say that they will never include a first-person perspective. We will have only seeing a red door, thinking of seeing a red door, thinking of thinking about seeing a red door, and so on. This is a fairly powerful argument, but it may achieve less than Dignaga needs it to. Remember, he needs to show us not just that some cognitions include subjective awareness, but that they all do. And his regress argument simply doesn't show this. The opponent who believes in reflective awareness could stop the regress at any stage by saying that we have reached a cognition that is, unlike simple perception, self-aware. Imagine our person in a coffee shop, who is unaware she is hearing music, and then has the music brought to her attention. Isn't it reasonable to suppose that, in the very act of reflecting on her previously oblivious perception, the coffee shop patron is aware that she is reflecting on it? Ah yes, she might think. Isn't that sympathy for the devil I hear? And hasn't it been playing for several minutes already? We might say that her own mental life has been brought to her attention. So, the opponent could plausibly say that awareness is built into the second-order reflection, but not into the first-order perception. And this is what our coffee shop patron would remember if she looks back on this event in the future.
The same problem seems to apply to Damakirti's presentation of the argument. He adds a new idea to what we find in Dignaga, namely that the original perception itself is somehow in doubt. The perceiver cannot be reassured that the perception is really grasping a given object without being aware that this is so. As Damakirti puts it, awareness would establish the perception. If we now add a second-order reflection, like McJagger's thinking, here I am seeing a door, then this second-order reflection seems to stand in need of similar ratification. As modern-day scholar Birgit Kellner has pointed out, Damakirti may here be depending on the assumption that one thing cannot make another thing known unless it is itself known. Which is all well and good, but it invites the same response we just made to Dignaga. Perhaps the second-order reflection includes awareness and is, in that sense, self-ratifying, but first-order perception is not. In defense of Dignaga and Dharmakirti, we should note that this response involves making a significant concession to them, namely that at least some cognitions are reflexively self-aware. If the regress argument is aimed at someone who insists that cognition never has a subjective aspect and so always requires higher-order reflection, if it is to be noticed, then the regress argument works just fine. One might add that to make this response, we should really explain why some cognitions have self-awareness while others do not. Why is Mick not actively aware of seeing the door, but then aware when he reflects that he sees the door? Dignaga's view has no such problem, since it makes awareness just a part of what it is to be perceiving or cognizing something. As Daimakirti puts it, Someone who does not perceive the awareness of something is not aware of anything at all. One reason Dignaga's discussion of awareness was so influential is that it could be accepted within several different strands of Buddhism, even if some Tibetan Buddhists would later come to reject it. Dharmakirti takes the theory in an idealist direction by denying that there are any external objects at all. As we've said, Dignaga seems to have been saying merely that the immediate objects of our perceptions are representations internal to our minds, and that we are always aware of the perceptions we have of these internal representations. Awareness, we might say, is what gives us access to the internal objects of perception. This is compatible with saying that the mental representations do represent things out there in the world. Dhammakirti, though, seems to have felt that if we are only aware of internal representations, then there remains no role for the external objects to play. This yields the full flowering of Yogacara Buddhist idealism, which was to be so influential in Tibet. Yet the basic principle established by Dignaga could also be accepted by the non-idealist Sautrantika tradition, which does accept the reality of external things. This principle is that we only grasp things as we are representing them from a first-person perspective. Whether or not we grasp real objects, our grasp is never objective in the sense that we are always grasping things in a certain way, as a photographic portrait only presents one particular view of a face. However one frames Dignaga's theory, it may seem strange that it is a theory that developed within Buddhism, of all traditions. Buddhists reject the real existence of the self, so why would they want to put so much emphasis on self-awareness? Isn't the first person involved in having a first-person perspective precisely the self? This is exactly what Nyaya philosophers like Udyotakara thought, that the phenomenon of introspective self-awareness establishes the reality of the self. Proponents of the self would also have been quick to point to memory, precisely the phenomenon at the center of Dignaga's proof, as confirmation of their own position that the self must remain identical over time. 
Indeed, some non-Buddhist philosophers who came after Dignaga borrowed his idea of a reflexive understanding of the conscious mind and transformed it into a theory of self, claiming that the self just consists in reflexive self-consciousness. But of course, in denying the self, the Buddhists never meant to deny that we have a mental life. There are no selves, but there are flowing streams of reflexively self-aware moments of consciousness. Such a flowing stream may include memories of past moments and anticipations of future moments. The mistake is to allow ourselves thoughts of the form, I am happy, or I am in pain, implying that we can draw a firm boundary around just one stream of subjectivity, saying that this, and this alone, is me. It's like trying to keep track of individual waves in the sea, thinking that there is a good answer to the question, is this another wave or the same wave as before? A nice example of the sort of question that would have been greeted with silence by the Buddha. So, despite first appearances, the idea that consciousness is reflexive is compatible with the Buddhist position that there is no such thing as the self. With that, we end our look at Dignaga, but we are not quite done looking at Buddhist philosophy. We've just been asking whether there is a single self which comes to our awareness every time we are reflectively or reflexively conscious of our experiences. The Buddhists obviously say no. But that isn't the only way to argue for an enduring self. You might think we need a self to serve as a kind of control center, which would direct our intentions, our acts of both mind and body. Next time, we'll be moving to Sri Lanka to consider a very slightly earlier Buddhist philosopher who came to grips with this objection and argued that we are like puppets with no one pulling the strings. So be a doll and join us as we look at Buddha Gosa next time here on the History of Philosophy in India.